Hello and welcome to John Richardson and the Future Notes. It's Series 4, Episode 8. I am John Richardson and I am joined as ever by Mark Stevenson. Hello. And Ed Gillespie. Privit. What? Privit. What does that mean? It means hello in Ukrainian. How do we verify that? <laughs> Ask a Ukrainian. They'll speak to me back in Ukrainian and I won't know whether they mean, you know. <laughs> what? Yes, that is hello in Ukrainian in Ukrainian. That is about the extent of my Ukrainian. Give me some credit. I've mastered one word. I've Googled it and it says that's right. Do you have a listen? Go on then. Привет. Okay. There you go. I should pretend more feminine though. If only there was some kind of international information system where you could check these things more easily. <laughs> I hear your pecker is up. That's a good thing. How are you? Slightly freaked out. What's freaked you out? So my new company, what I co-founded, yesterday we, we started our swanky new offices, which are right in the middle of the city. And I've spent 20 years of my life running away from corporate offices and all that. And suddenly I find myself in a lift going up seven floors to an open plan office with views over Liverpool Street. It's like, don't know what to do with myself. Didn't you say the office is a totem to disaster capitalism and like working in an, a weapon that's pointed at everything you love? Did I say that? I, you I did, did say that. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is probably where my discomfort originates then. <laughs> We're subletting a bit of an office off a much larger company, which has got this whole floor and it's empty. It's literally empty. It's like your postcodes, like everybody's at home. They're, they must be paying an absolute fortune for it. And there's nobody there. It's absolutely ridiculous. And it just made me think about the stupidness of the world where there's all this empty, expensive space and we've still got homeless people. So I'm trying to build this company that's fixing the world, but I'm still somehow having to interact with this horrible, broken, stupid world that I hate. So there you go. So my pecker's up, but also whatever. I think you're going to change over the next few weeks. I'm picturing you already in like a pinstripe suit. <laughs> there. A secretary in an adjoining office who just buzz every now and again. Toby. Bring me a latte. <laughs> You're going to be like the Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. I think I'm more going to be like the meerkat of Musgrove Road. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go to the beaver of East Anglia. That doesn't work, does it? <laughs> How about the Lark of Loddon? Yeah. Because you do a bit of poetry, don't you, Ed? I call it poetry. You you make noises. Well, it's be <laughs> you, you put it down as limericks last week. That's a progression. Take it. I thought I'd have my game, so I wrote a haiku about the liberated sluice because, yeah, I'm free-flowing again. I encourage you to write haikus because they are short. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I think if there's any trend in your poetry that should be embraced, it is brevity. No, I had a group of burly men come round immediately after we recorded last week. <laughs> yes, but what about the sluice? Exactly. <laughs> and they hit it repeatedly with sticks and forks and got it moving again. So uh, I wrote them a little ode, which is just... Floating wood meets sluice. Environment agency effect logs freedom. Very nice. A haiku is supposed to be a little contemplative moment. I'm contemplating why am I here right now? <laughs> Go back to your office. Julian, get me a latte. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ed, you put something on our group that I think you wanted to discuss a bit of marketing from Jim Pass. Oh, from Jim Pass, yes. You know, when you get. <laughs> You get these kind of messages that come in from... As if from a friend. As if from a friend. So it's all like personalised and written down. Ben Timmons. Hi, Ed. How are you? As a co-presenter at John Richardson, The Future Noughts, you understand the corporate crisis of retention. Of course <laughs> I do. 33% <laughs> of employees feel unhappy about their jobs. 
one of us here is definitely unhappy about their job. It's me. Yeah. <laughs> 45% do not believe their employer cares. So with Gym Pass, you can gather the best resources for physical, mental, and nutritional health and deliver them directly to your employees. I'm interested to see which is us as the employer and which is the employees. Yeah. So mm-hmm. Would you be interested in learning more? So here we are, the corporate crisis of retention to be solved by going to the gym. Are we having a crisis of retention? Well, I don't understand what that means, so it can't be me. I can't be the 33%. I mean, you have a crisis of anal retention. Oh, frequently. Well, I eat too much kimchi. I had a crisis of log retention in my sluice. This is series four, so we, th- we clearly have a problem with retention. I mean, we have a problem with recruitment. Nobody wants to join our American. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we have a crisis of retention in listeners, and we need to offer them more gym pass. Do you think? We could try it. I don't think so. We're already going to build a club for them, aren't we? The John Rish and the Future Norts League of Pragmatic Optimists. Oh, of course, yeah. That's, how's that going? Has anyone made any progress this week? It did strike me that there is already a movement called Good for Nothing, which is more creatively oriented, but sort of does a similar thing. But there may be collaborations that could happen with some existing networks as well. Collaboration, it's so last century. (laughs) There we go. Here comes the wolf. (laughs) Kill them all! There is only takeover. Do we also want to talk about the crisis in the carbon markets as well? Is there a crisis in the carbon market? Oh, yes, there is. Go on. You're only allowed to talk about it if you don't mention your company. Okay. Let's move on then. (laughs) (laughs) No, but there's been a couple of exposés, one in The Guardian and one in a magazine called Follow the Money, exposing the crappy nature of many of these carbon credits that have been sold to organisations that have gone on to claim that they've been doing great things to the climate and found out that actually these credits weren't doing nearly what they said they were supposed to be doing and the way that it's verified is very, very poor. And it's an absolute shit show and it pisses me off because the voluntary carbon markets have had 20, 25 years to get their shit together. And they fucking haven't. And it's a fucking disgrace. These people are selling their services on trying to save the planet. And actually, they have been, to a large extent, hampering quite a lot of it by making the whole thing murky and untrustworthy and unverifiable. And it drives me fucking mad, which is why I've set up the company I have. But I'm not naming it, obviously. (laughs) Because that would be product placement and we wouldn't be that shabby. It's called Curate. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, I think we're allowed, aren't we? But I still think... When we talked about your own personal carbon emissions being fashioned into a butt plug yeah, and then having to be forcibly inserted, which might make people think more radically about how they might reduce those emissions for a more comfortable life, I did have a bit of listener feedback which said that is possibly the best close to an environmental podcast that has ever been recorded or ever will be. I'm taking that. Think about the butt plug that would have to get up Jeff Bezos' ass. Yeah. If it was made of all the carbon that he was responsible for emitting. Terrifying. Yeah. The report is saying that these companies that claim to have been what offsetting carbon haven't been doing so. I mean, it's all it's all messed up anyway, because people are buying carbon credits and don't really know what they do. So some of them protect environmental resources that we already have, carbon sinks like forests. Some of them help us move over to low carbon infrastructure by investing in renewables or other projects that stop people using fossil fuels. And a very small proportion of them remove carbon from the atmosphere, usually by planting trees, which take too long to do what's required. But it turns out the forests haven't been protected as much as we thought they were. And the amount of renewables that they invest in isn't quite as much as we thought it was. And actually, there isn't nearly enough verification or oversight in these markets. And lots of people are marking their own homework. But they've been selling literally hundreds of millions of dollars of these credits to corporations who've now been saying, oh, well, I bought all these credits, so therefore my 
car or my whatever is carbon neutral, I'm doing all this stuff. So in the corporation's defense, they've been sold something. They've now found it's not very good. So their claims have been undermined by their supplier who's been selling these sloppy credits. And it just reduces trust, which is really annoying because we do need to be protecting those forests. So we do need to be moving to renewables. But if you say to people, this is where you do it and then you do it badly, then you make the whole thing even worse. So as an environmental organization, you can fuck yourself up the arse with that butt plug made out of carbon because I'm coming for you. So this is a failure of regulation and corporations taking the sort of easy step to claiming eco-credentials. Well, it's a failure of regulation because the carbon market isn't very well regulated. They've been trying to sort themselves out for 25 years and arguing about who does what and whatever. The NGO that we co-run is trying to sort some of that stuff out with some other thoughtful people in, in the industry. It's not everybody's bad, but they just haven't really got themselves organized. And there's a lot of people in the carbon credit space marking their own homework or they're incentivized to overestimate how much carbon is being protected because, oh, their business model is from selling those credits. So there's lots of conflicts of interest and it does my bloody nuts. And if somebody comes to you and says, oh, I can sell you a carbon credit for $10 so that you can claim that your TV production is now carbon neutral, this thing called Albert Sustainable Production, it's absolute fucking greenwashing bullshit that people need to take some responsibility for. Sorry, I get very angry about it. It's why I set up a company. It's why I am now sitting in an office where I don't really want to be sitting in the city of London trying to build a company because it's made me so furious. The other side of the argument is also, like, as you say, Mark, given the fact there's hundreds of millions, if not billions of pounds being invested in those offsets, so there's a strong argument that says that that money would be better spent in actually reducing the combustion and the carbon emissions in the first place. Yeah, I mean, the argument is that, you know, there's some of that stuff that takes time. And while you're doing that, it's good to invest in other stuff. So, you know, you, you reduce your own emissions, but then you invest in these things that protect the sinks of the planet and help the whole planet move over to renewables more generally. There's a, there's a definite path that makes a lot of sense. It's just been done very, very badly because we've got a lot of amateurs selling crap and a regulatory market that doesn't really know how to regulate. And so that's why we exist and why our NGO exists and why the company exists, because we're trying to solve that problem. Along with, you know, I'm not going to slack everybody else in this industry. There's a lot of very thoughtful people grappling with these issues. But it needs sorting because the planet hasn't got very long. Well, I'm going to refer you to our listener, Michael Johnston, who said this week, and he says he's at pains to point out, I listen and I love the show, but is the more recent pivot to everything's fucked and they're all C's the best way to engage? Share your frustrations, but perhaps the episodes that focus on more positive solutions are likely to engage more people. So on that, I find it depressing that you're telling me that what little work has been done in this sphere has been perhaps not what it seems to be. Beyond your company and speaking to the individual listener who listens to this and throws their shoulders up and thinks, ah, fuck it, what can we offer by way of, well, no, it's not your job to offer comfort, but what can we offer by way of future possible solutions? We've been working to try and tidy up the whole carbon market and explain what needs to be done. So we absolutely need to protect the stuff that's already there. Okay. And there needs to be an improvement, certainly from the reports this week and the standards by which we verify the protection of existing carbon sinks. We absolutely need to move people over to renewables. So investing in credits that help people do that is good as well. And we absolutely have to remove 200 gigatons of carbon by 2050. That's the bit that we're not doing quick enough. So that's why my company exists and the NGO exists. There are other people in that space. I'm very happy for us to have competitors because the more competitors we have, the more carbon is coming out of the atmosphere. So there is a huge amount of interest and money now flowing into this space. And this extra scrutiny, hopefully, will help people buck their ideas up. So there is a route out of it. We've just got to move very, very quickly and very, very fast. And the company I set up and the NGO that we work with are basically designed to create that market, accelerate that market, professionalize it so that the billions of dollars we need to build this operating system for the planet can be built. I 
don't know whether we're going to succeed. I just know that that's what I'm dedicating my life to. So at least one future naught is on it. And if that's not enough, God knows what else is. <laughs> it's, it's Mark just implying that I'm not on it. <laughs> no, no, well, I may as well. well. Just, just, I'm just saying, you know, future notes assemble. One of the reasons I think people like this podcast is we don't just talk about it. We are actually out there doing things about yeah. it. And I believe, John, that you said you were going to remove the carbon from your tour. So there you go. Go and see John Richardson as opposed to other less carbon sensitive comedians. Shift the market. Well, I would hope that if we're able to do it and announce at the end of the tour, this is what we've done and it's practical, it might create a pathway for other comics. I think at the moment in our industry, it's just there's nobody even thinking that that's a responsibility. So hopefully if we get a bit of press around it. Interesting, comedy should be one of the places that are leading it because it's a very high profit per tonne business. Yeah. So the amount of emissions that come out, say, of a comedy tour are actually quite small and the profit that generally comes out of a comedy tour once you get sort of the, the level of stratospheric success of yourself, John. Is quite large. So this is a cohort that can afford to sort of invest in the market early and not notice it too much. Although actually we're working with lots of very low margin businesses as well that just take this stuff seriously. So we don't want to live in a world where you don't go and see a gig. We're in this conversation with lots of big venues and artists or whatever about folding the cost of the removal of the carbon into the ticket price and into the price of the burger and all that kind of stuff. So you don't notice it, but you get to still go to your favorite venue eat a nice meal and we're paying for the damage within the cost of it. And that's how the economy should bloody work. That's what a sensible economy does. It accounts for all the damage it might be doing and then pays to sort that out. And that would be a functioning, normal, still probably a market economy, but it'd be one that has the social costs of what it's doing baked into the system. That's what we need to build. So anyway, John Richardson is appearing at the Apollo uh, in March <laughs> on the, perhaps I think the world's first carbon removed comedy tour. Well done, John. That's two future notes that are on it. Ed? <laughs> I did enjoy Reading Football Club's strip this week. I don't know if you saw that in the news where they changed the strip to reflect the increasing temperature in the atmosphere. So they had the temperature bands on the sleeves of the shirt, which was then picked up by the ITV commentating team. And so there was this very interesting commentary about climate change and temperature increases. And I thought that was a brilliant way of getting that type of information in a really accessible, meaningful way across to a huge audience that would never normally perhaps come across that. Yeah, indeed. I mean, there are a number of Premier League football teams that are thinking quite seriously about climate now and doing some interesting stuff that we want to have a conversation with. It'd be really interesting to have a conversation with Leeds, actually, John. So if you've got an in there, let us know. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm happy to set up a chat there. There are um, certain things. For example, Leeds played Accrington and Stanley in the FA Cup this week, and I was reflecting on how nice it was to see the pitch side sponsors are not exclusively gambling companies. And I would hope that the uh, Accrington Stanley versus Leeds United game didn't lead to a generation of young people being addicted to floor screeding, which was the main sponsor of that game. What is floor screeding? <laughs> it's like the way you have like a concrete floor. Yeah. And it gets all that high polished. I don't know. Let's have a look. It just shows that it didn't work. Concrete <laughs> floor screeding. Yeah. Quality concrete finishes. There you go. They're getting free advertising here. This is the second bit of product placement we've had today. Yeah, I'm not sure a load of concrete is the most uh, environmentally friendly for. No, concrete, very carbon intensive. Concrete, very carbon intensive. Get yourself some laminate instead, lads. Well, let's not put that through. Uh, Soil? (laughs) Yeah, soil's good. We like soil, but it's not great for the kitchen. No. (laughs) Did you see uh, Duncan Ferguson being appointed as the manager of Dale Vince's Forest Green Rovers this week? Uh, I didn't see that, but we know Dale and we're having some conversation with him. Yes, he has taken on Duncan Ferguson, a hard man 
of British football, now retired footballer. And, and as part of his introduction interview, he was asked if he was planning to become a vegan. And Dale Vince happened to have on hand two vegan burgers. And it's worth looking online for the face that Duncan Ferguson pulls <laughs> when he's asked if he's going to be a vegan now. And the mealy-mouthed answer, well, you know, obviously, um, you know, obviously that, that's a big, you know, we'll be looking into uh, ways that we can, you know, we've all got to reduce. He's trying his best to not say, no, I will not. <laughs> 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 but yeah, I would love to see Leeds as a word leader in... Um... In something. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. <laughs> Let's go to Matt from Hartlepool, which, if John would like to do the accent, is a naff, not a strong Geordie accent. With the deplorable state of this Conservative government and the endless list of scandals, notwithstanding what we found out this weekend about the former Chancellor finding a tax return too difficult and the BBC chairman helping multi-millionaire former PM Johnson to an 800k loan, do you think the British public would or could revolt against the government? Well, yeah, they certainly could. Uh, I mean, like, I don't know. I think we are suffering from this drip, drip, drip effect, aren't we? You know, where you wonder how people's tolerance of scandal after scandal doesn't trigger something like more vociferous by way of response. But I think that's the terrible human propensity to adaptation. This is how despots and authoritarians often creep into power through sort of progressive steps where people end up accepting things which a few years or a few months previously would have been outrageously unacceptable. Mm. It's impossible, especially after the Deem Sahawi, you know, which is just like another scandal on top of all the other ones. I mean, it's a bit like when we were talking about Baroness Moan resting that money in her account. And now we've got Zahawi, a former Chancellor of the Exchequer, okay, briefly, resting his money offshore to the tune of about five million quid. And I don't know, I, I wonder, we know this is such a lame duck government that is just kind of limping along. But because of the forced electoral cycle, which means, you know, we have planned elections, we have to wait to really tell them what we think of them. And that is enormously frustrating, I think. Your support can bottom out. Virtually nobody except a rabid corner of the right-wing press defending what you're trying to do. And yet the rest of us have to sort of sit there and take it uh, until we get a chance to go back to the ballot box. In slight defence of democracy, there is a point at some point in the next couple of years where we will be able to say, well, we don't like you lot, and even though I hate the two-party system, the other lot can have a go. And actually, we talked about the report, that the whole thing about how Labour would reform sort of governance in this country and, and a lot more local stuff, so, and getting rid of the House of Lords or replacing it with an elected second chamber and all the proportional representation. So I think there is this sort of moment where Labour is likely to get in, they're likely to get in with a big majority, which allows them to do more radical things. I think if they... I've got any sense, they will sense the tone in the country, which is like, fucking sort this out, boys. We cannot carry on like this. So in defense of democracy, we at least have that. That wouldn't be happening in certain other countries. It doesn't happen in Russia, for instance. Well, on that, how do you cope with, because one of the things I find most dispiriting is the frequently uttered phrase, well, they're all the same. Because I think perhaps since the expenses scandal, or we've had a few political scandals that have affected all parties equally, there is this idea that all politics, and I couldn't disagree more. And I think the change that would happen overnight if you looked at a government that was more representative of working classes and had a different ethos at its heart and was driven by its desire to share power out a bit more equally and, and drive the green agenda a bit further. 
I really struggle when people just say, well, they're all the same, because I think, oh, that's so depressing that we've come to think that. Because that, when you are trapped in a two-party system, that is the only salvation you have, is that the other lot would be different. Yeah, and apathy, I think we've touched on it before, can often be a political tactic, eh. I hate to say it, but that reduction of everyone to being the same gristy, grafting type of politician is grotesquely unfair and actually plays into the hands of one of the parties because unfortunately you see the majorities that have come in are often relying on older voters so if you can turn off a younger generation and you know voting turnout amongst young people is very low because of that oh it's all the same and that's our biggest problem if we had a much higher turnout we would not have i don't think the same reductive binary type of approach that we end up with at the moment it's maddening the other solution, of course, is like a genuine sort of political alternative that says, I'm going to change the system. So, Ed, I think, given that we've already established that uh, John and I are already doing quite a lot, <laughs> I think Ed Gillespie for Prime Minister <laughs> should be where we're heading to. You do know about my past, don't you? <laughs> I think people would embrace your <laughs> colourful past as a sign of things really changing. You know, it didn't hurt Donald Trump, did it? <laughs> You have just compared me to Donald Trump. Yeah, Thank that you. was a low blow, that. I'm just saying, given what we've said, you know, nobody's going to care about your outrageous taste in fancy dress and questionable bearding practices. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know where I could go with that. No, I, I, had you not slagged off Leeds United, I might have come to your aid there, but sadly you're on your own, Trump. <laughs> <laughs> there was a really good point there. I think there's another listener's email from Martin Fennell who said, my mum always asks the political canvassers on the doorstep, which of your opponent's policies do you wish were yours? And I think that's a really good question because what it does is it starts to sort of flush out the fact that, you know, we, we can't just be sort of blindly tribal about these things. So he was suggesting that everyone should ask, which of your opponent's policies do you agree with most? And which of your party's policies do you disagree with most? To try and get a more intellectual discussion going rather than blindly accepting everything that your party's central office seems to churn out by way of a manifesto. Because I think that's the territory we're in. And to get people to acknowledge their own political allegiances won't be perfect. And there may well be ideas that transcend ideology. As Mark always says, people are divided by politics, but united over projects, which might actually be good for the country. And my friend Toby does a lot of Green Party canvassing around here in North Suffolk. And he said, you know, a lot of the work that he does on the doorstep is literally just listening to people um, and giving them a chance to vent some of their frustrations because they, people don't feel heard. Well, it's not a representative democracy, is it? It's one where we get replaced. And that's the problem with it. Yeah. Anyway, they're all cunts and, uh, <laughs> and it's all pointless. So let's just give up. You were doing so well. You were doing so well. <laughs> Let's move on to a completely different topic. That's my favorite thing about this series is that it's listener-led and so we can quite happily lurch from a conversation about the two-party system to, hello, future notes. is online dating, especially in middle age, futile? <laughs> is the art of spontaneous conversation in the real world lost? And if it still does happen, is it bound to lack intent because there are endless alternative options to swipe through later? So this question comes from Lorna in Manchester, who particularly enjoyed pre-Christmas Mark's rant about strikes and who eagerly anticipates the rollout of the future North League of Pragmatic Optimists in preference to a singles night. So she favours a sort of dating system where they have sort of mixers and events where you're allowed to talk to someone as opposed to just swipe interruptions online. But 
asks, is conversation in general suffering from the idea that online you've got an endless list of people you can just look at and make a judgment on straight away? Uh, no. If you want to find somebody to date, go to places where you're going to find people that you like. And that's one of the things about the League of Black Bank Optimists when it was running. We had lots of people ending up dating each other because they went to a place where they're all positive, helpful, proactive, non-partisan places. So I think... Sort of like dogging for the future. <laughs> I was going to say, you very seamlessly, within two sentences, said, yeah, we're going to set up the uh, League of Pragmatic Artists and it's a great place to get laid. <laughs> it means anywhere you go to places where people share the same passions as you is a great place to get laid because you're likely to find somebody who kind of shares your passions and concerns. So I think it's our job to get Lorna laid. That sounds like a song lyric from a dodgy sentence. It does sound more <laughs> lyrical than it deserves to, given the intention behind it. It's our job to get Lorna lead. Prog taking a risque turn. <laughs> the League of Progmatic Optimists. Right. Oh, that's it. That's it. No, I've got lots of friends who've met online, so I don't think it's a bad idea to meet people online. I'm so old that I didn't meet my beloved. I did it classically by being sat next to her at a wedding. I guess that's offline dating, is it? Or Had someone deliberately sat you next to each other? Yes. So it was sort of plotted. Yeah, the bride and the groom had indeed sat us next to each other. I got sat on a singles table at a wedding. That was bloody torture. What, for everybody else? <laughs> it was basically, you might as well have called it the spare table. That's how it felt. It felt like we were sat on sort of children's chairs right. while the grown-ups all coupled up and had a intelligent conversations and there was sort of nod and a wink. You lot go over there, see what happens. <laughs> and did anything happen? Nothing happened at all. I ruined a lot of people's afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of relationships, though, John, mm-hmm. I, I did give you the honour of watching Odd Couples the other Thank day. you. I, it struck me that we're a kind of weird thruple <laughs> on, this, on this podcast. But I, I was surprised by hearing you saying, I just want to be brutally sodomised by a more alpha male. Yeah, I don't remember saying that. That's a problem with these things. When did I say that? You said that in the first episode. Did I? Yeah. I've not seen this, and I think I've been encouraged to definitely carry on in that ambition. Yeah, start from episode two. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I was just saying how refreshing it was to see such a high-minded and mature approach to the complexities of long-term <laughs> intimate human relationships. Yes. Well, I consider myself here to break down barriers, and I think some people live very unhappy lives without the ability to confess what they want. Right. And you did have a futuristic element to it. I learned that 40% of people are prepared to have sex with a robot. Yes. No. Yeah. There you go. You've got him gripped. This has been very good, Ed. <laughs> I should be doing this kind of stuff on Sunday brunch. That's more people would be watching. What do you mean by robot? Well, that's what Richard Herring said. He said, surely a personal massage device is technically a robot. You mean a vibrator, Ed? It's okay. You can say it. <laughs> just without the rest of the body attached. Because it's just women being very efficient and cutting to the chase and not messing around with all the extremities. It's like, <laughs> just give me the thing. This is very dodgy territory. Uh, <laughs> one in four men apparently send dick pics, which I find deeply shocking. Oh, I hate men sometimes. They're so stupid. Do you want to hear from another man? <laughs> this is Will from Norwich. Oh, no. Norwich boy. All right, boy. Yeah. Uh, I spent the weekend walking the dog. Must be bloody knackered and catching up on season four. <laughs> Not to be too sycophantic, but your podcast is my favourite. Oh, is he, is he going for Best Listener Award? That we Yeah, that's what yeah. it is. Okay. Absolutely. Ass kissing from the start. I loved George's idea of meeting up to talk with like-minded people. I've been well up for this. The league is kicking off. Yes. There are many things I'd love to hear a full show on, such as the benefits of meditation and whether any of you practice at all. 
psychedelics and whether their rise in popularity could make for a healthier, more connected and eco-conscious society, alternatives and money, and even quantum computers, not quantum pig computers. That being said, I have a far more important question. And he then goes on to say cocks for fingers or a vagina for a mouth, which would you rather have? But I'm going to go back. Good, because I'm not answering that one. I'm trying to portray men as something a little more enlightened. We, we've never discussed meditation at all and whether anyone practiced. I'm going to speculate now on behalf of the listeners and say that Ed does and Mark doesn't. But let's find out. Meditation and its importance to a corpus sana in mentis, whatever. Yes. Well, I would say my practice is erratic, but is important. We make this point quite regularly about finding quiet lacunae for calm reflection. And I think for all of the many reasons of busy lives and full family responsibilities, we do find it quite tough to make that time for quietness and stillness. And I think it is part of an intrinsic element of our modern malaise that we don't craft that time. And I think you separate it out from the psychedelics, but I don't think the two are entirely separate because it is about slightly different states of consciousness. I think one thing that both meditation and psychedelics do is help to rewire your brain. They create connections between different parts of the brain that wouldn't normally be in touch through your conventional habits and patterns of thinking. And I think the rise of psychedelics in particular is fascinating now that it's become much more scientifically acceptable now that a lot of the kind of hysterical furore around people losing their minds sort of came from the Timothy Leary era in the 60s. And you've got Imperial College and people like Robin Carhart-Davies working on these. And actually, I just saw a leadership program which is being launched, which is going to be an 18-month program where people will join and actually do a very deliberate, controlled, experimental practice using psychedelics to see if it can open their minds to a more interconnected and interdependent way of perceiving the world and therefore more informed decision-making. I think true systems thinking goes hand in hand with psychedelics. Now, that's not getting off your head with your mates, but this is using this as another tool in our box in a clever and informed and responsible way. And I think it's got tremendous potential. You guys have, neither of you have done psychedelics. I mean, I say this from, you know, my own relatively limited, but I do have some experience of this. And you, you never see the world in the same way again. And I do think there is something in this, although you do hear people like Vinnie Gupta, who's one of the kind of Ethereum designers, you know, for cryptocurrency and all around sort of crazy activist. He says, I only do acid because the mushrooms have an agenda. <laughs> I haven't. It won't surprise anyone to hear done anything psychedelic. My concern is that you're seeing the world as it isn't rather than as it is. And my ethos has always been to try and attain some level of calm and comfort in a neutral state so that I know if I'm happy when I'm sober, then everything else is done for pleasure and for its own joy rather than to seek a solution in a an alternate reality that is. Well, but this is the thing, John. I think this is where the therapeutic applications are so interesting, but because of the way that things like psilocybin help to rewire the brain, they're actually being used very effectively for treatment of addiction and obsessive compulsive disorder and depression, which has been unresponsive to practically every other intervention. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and psychedelics are showing a very, very high degree of empirical efficacy in helping to tackle those seemingly intractable problems that people have. 
So whether it's giving up smoking or drinking or other drug addictions, whether it's the kind of obsessive compulsive disorder, which can become completely paralyzing for people, or it's the spiral of depression and even, you know, end of life therapies, people using psychedelics to deal with the consequences, the ultimate consequences of terminal illness. And I think these are really rich seams of possibility, which go back actually in terms of humanity's anthropological history and practices go back thousands of years. And we've alienated and legislated against them. And I think we're having to go back to rediscover things that we already knew. Love that. Mark? No, I don't fucking meditate. Of course I don't <laughs> meditate. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, exactly. This is why you're back working in an office and about to get yourself a pinstripe suit. <laughs> I'm intrigued though, John, as to why you assumed Ed had and I didn't. Well, I mean, I think the tone of your response tells you everything you need to know. I don't think regular meditators run around dropping C-bombs quite so liberally. I don't know. No, I don't meditate and I've never taken any psychedelics. I've got ADD, so I find it very hard for my mind to calm down anyway. Meditation seems to sort of like just frustrate me, but what I need to do is do something that distracts it enough that's completely mindless. So, for instance, weight training or indeed this podcast are things that I find the nearest to meditation, like just listening to you two blabber on, actually puts me to quite a catatonic and relaxed state. <laughs> well, I mean, again, ADD is one of the conditions that people are using psychedelics to treat. Here he comes, opening his jacket pocket. Have a little sniff on that, mate. Rub that in your gums. You'll be absolutely fine. <laughs> well, no, I mean, this goes back to, I can't remember which series it was, John, where we got you to go and camp out in your garden in a tent. Yes. Spend a night out alone in nature. I think these are the transformative practices that you kind of need when a world is going mad around you. So we're agreed next week I'm going to do shrooms. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I tell you on, what, Ed, you on the host, show. You on the show. the show. You host the show. <laughs> Me and John will get completely <laughs> shit faced. It links to an email we had from Laurie, and I think it's something we should talk about. Laurie says, I wondered if there could be an episode on the future of mental health or it would be interesting to hear your views on mental health provisions, in particular for children. I work for local government, taking referrals into adults and children's social care. It feels glaringly obvious to me that so many of the issues with which I'm presented over the phone are ones which have escalated from childhood and are as psychological as they are physical. Mm. Um, I hope that's a useful discussion point, Laurie. I would be more than up for doing a full episode on mental health. I think there's a lot of people that we could... Uh, reach out to get some maybe not a guest for the hour but have several sort of voice notes and interjections for discussion i would say that you can't separate mental health from everything else mm -hmm. it's a systemic problem a lot of the reasons we have the mental health problems we do is essentially because of the way we run the economy and what it says people can and cannot do and how they're valued and how they're not i get frustrated when companies go like let's help our employees with their mental health by getting them a meditation app or some sleep pods or you know their gym downstairs like well the reason they're kind of miserable is because they're stuck in an economic system that you're part of that's perpetrating destruction of the planet vast amounts of wealth transfer to basically the owners of the business but not you and they fucking hate their jobs but yeah sure get them a sleep pod the system is wrong i think when you start to separate out mental health sometimes from the rest of that system you can try and put it as if it's some kind of thing that we control with drugs or with, you know, a bit more kindness or whatever. And actually, I think we need to go fundamentally back to the very tenets on which society runs, which contribute to us all feeling so shit all the time. And that's unraveling now even more and more because there's things like the war in Ukraine, the climate crisis, the biodiversity crisis, what's happening in our political system at the moment. These are all symptoms 
of a set of systems that are no longer fit for purpose. And when you live in that, that's very unsettling, which affects your mental health, which affects your ability to deal with that more or fix it or whatever. So it becomes this vicious circle. And we need to not just talk about mental health by itself. We need to talk about why is it that so people are so fucking miserable? And it's because the system is literally designed to turn you into somebody who's not very happy. When Adam Smith was writing The Wealth of Nations, there was this really interesting debate in the papers, lots of these exchanges between Adam Smith and other philosophers of the day. And they were saying things like, Adam Smith, this is an amazing piece of work. It's absolutely brilliant piece of economic analysis and all this stuff about efficiency and division of labor. It's just really great. The only thing is it looks like a shit place for people to live. On paper, it's fantastic. It's a really great piece of work, but it looks absolutely dreadful for people's mental health. And they were saying that right from the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. So we need to go back and look at that. Because my worry is you say, oh, how do we deal with mental health? You're separating out from the causes of why people are so miserable in the first place. I'm ranting. I'm sorry. See, I've got ADD. Maybe I need to go lie down. Of course, we'll have a meditation room and a sleep pod and everyone will be microdosing uh, before long. <laughs> no, they fucking won't. Julian, get those people out of here. <laughs> Bring me my uh, acid. <laughs> my acid latte. My, my lasted. This could be the next thing. After the John Rich and the Future Shorts League of Pragmatic Optimists, we'll set up a... An acid coffee shop. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do them alongside. I've got a feeling yeah. this is that might well merge at some point. Uh, so we will. I, I think it'll be a really interesting discussion point, and I am involved in something in that field at the moment, which I won't say anything about now because it's formative, but hopefully there'll be more information soon. Taking into account this podcast and its formation and its role as trying to help people in their mental well-being. Let's end with this from John Brennan who says, hello, I remember one of your podcasts a while ago, we talked about a tipping point for change being needed. As I was trying to get my head around my December energy bill, 400 pounds versus 130 last year, I wondered if we're going to reach the point where green energy will be taken seriously and the appropriate investments made. And I know, Ed, that you have a list of energy positive pieces of news. And I thought that might be a lovely way for us to end this week. Well, exactly. We're following on from that listener's feedback who said, let's stop dwelling on how everything's effed and everyone's a C. So there was a book out last week by Stanford University's Professor of Atmospheric Sciences and Energy, Professor Mark Jacobson, called No Miracles Needed. It is a pretty provocative book because what he's arguing is actually that renewables alone can halt the climate crisis that we face. And he says, Technologies such as new nuclear, biofuels, and some of the more expensive versions of carbon capture are actually a distraction because he said combustion is a problem, and when you're continuing to burn something, that's not solving the problem. And what he's calculated, and he's been working on this for a long time, is that actually a combination of wind energy, hydro, and solar energy can actually end the climate crisis, stop that deadly air pollution that kills about 7 million people a year, and give us energy security. And what we should be doing is focusing on the 95% of technologies that we have that already exist. And he said, you know, the other 5% of emissions reductions will come from a next generation of hydrogen fuel cells for the really hard stuff like planes and ships. And also what he's arguing, he said, we can actually cut energy use, which is something that no one ever talks about in terms of demand management, except for us. We can cut energy use by about 50% by 2050. And at the same time, in answers to John's question, we would probably cut bills by about 60% due to these dramatic efficiencies that you get for an emergent system, which is based on renewables and really good battery storage technologies. 
because what you get is these dramatic shifts in efficiencies because you're wasting very little energy in the system. The controversial bit, though, from Jacobson is that he's rejecting the sort of try everything all at once approach. And what he's saying is we should deploy what we already have as fast as we can, because there's all sorts of opportunity costs and lock-ins that we get wrapped up into when we only have a finite amount of money to invest. And that makes the choices really, really important. And he said, you know, things like speed of deployment around stuff like nuclear, which is big and slow and expensive, creates a massive opportunity cost. We could invest in that money elsewhere. We lock ourselves into big centralized generation yeah. and it's going to be very, very expensive energy. The storage will be the key. So we're going to have new batteries, flywheels, pumped hydro, these gravity batteries that lift up a very, very heavy weight when you've got excess energy and then you drop it uh, in order to generate energy. The storage of green hydrogen, which is generated by excess renewables. And of course, as we've touched on before, electric vehicles, which were going to be a massive component on this. And he said the biggest barrier is not the technology, as we've often said, it's people not believing it's possible. Now, his critics would say that this is a slightly idealistic idea, which doesn't connect fully with the real world. But the problem with that is, like, well, that's because of the vested interests and the people trying to slow down this. And if you look at the UK, we're regularly generating 30 to 40% of our electricity needs from renewables now. And if you include nuclear, that takes it up to about 50%. And so there is this enormous potential. Now, some people say Jacobson is being too optimistic, but it's certainly a very powerful kick in the ass. And then at the really grassroots level, and uh, we have to mention these guys, if you haven't come across them, Hilary Powell and Dan Edelstein, who are doing the power station project on Lynmouth Road in Walthamstow in northeast London, where, where they've got their community together to build basically a solar power plant across their collective rooftops, put solar on the local school. It's really radical and subversive, and it's working. And as our old friend Agamemnon Otero would say, this is power to, by, and for the people. And so I think it's like all of these things, the potential is there. We've got to think like a system and act like entrepreneurs in order to make it happen. I mean, if you look at the amount of money that's now flowing into renewables projects, it's pretty extraordinary. And I saw some reports, I can't remember, but certainly in some parts of the world, you know, renewables is now in excess of any other uh, investment. And it's mostly solar and it's mostly wind. His thesis that you, you have to concentrate on the technologies we've got, can't neatly sidesteps that actually he quotes a whole bunch of technology we don't have, which is those battery technologies that need to be accelerated. And in terms of removing carbon, all the science says, even if we stopped emitting carbon tomorrow, we've got to pull back 200 gigatons of it. So so he does have a slightly sort of maniac kind of, you know, this is my thesis, but he's absolutely right. Investing in very, very expensive nuclear power plants, when actually if you took all that money and stuck it into renewables and distributed that, would be massive. The problem here is our political, in that people who have power, literally, and I mean access to the power that goes into your home, they do not want to relinquish it. They do not want a distributed energy system where we all get to generate our own power. There was a bit I wrote in my first book where I say, you know, a couple of generations from now, maybe my grandchildren or great-grandchildren will come to me and say, so let me get this right, Daddy. So when you were a boy, they used to burn this stuff in a, in a big factory, which would lose 67% of its, its energy through waste heat. And then they'd pump that energy down a wire, which would lose another 7 or 8% of it. And then you'd uh, it'd come into your house and you'd have to pay somebody to have access to that wire, 
wouldn't you? And also the thing they were burning was causing climate change and was also responsible for all sorts of energy wars. Is that is that how uh-huh. it worked? And you go, yeah, that's kind of how it works. And they go, but, but granddad, it's coming for free out of the sky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's when they say, when you hear these kind of like net zero critics who say net zero is going to leave us colder, hungrier and poorer, it's bollocks. That genuinely is bollocks. And that is the political machinations unfolding. Yeah, I mean, in terms of good news as well, you know, what's happened now is lots of people have now set these net zero targets. They don't know how to get to them, but there's now definitely a direction of travel. But as always, we've left it way too fucking late. That's why we need the Future Nonce League of Pragmatic Optimists and the Acid Latte Cafe. (laughs) (laughs) If anything was going to make you stay tuned, it's a chain of acid lattes. But I think we should do that episode on mental health. And I think we pretty much ended on an optimistic bent there, which should also respond to Scott who tweeted this week I love this podcast although it is all their fault that I'm now aware of the environmental situation and constantly depressed crying laughing emoji <laughs> hopefully we've done a little there to, to redress the balance but you can always find us on Twitter at J and the F it's a good way to get your questions in and it is basically the first leg of the League of Pragmatic Optimists if you want to engage with our listeners you can find them following us on Twitter and you can join that community you can reach us by email hello at johnandthefuturenots.com I've just said it so there you go send us your emails send us your tweets we'll be back very soon we've got lots of dates in the diary haven't we so there's some more podcasts coming up Thank you very much, Mark and Ed. I'm off to meditate. No, I'm not. No, you're not. You're going to fire Toby for being late with your drink. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to put your feet up on the desk and light up a cigar. Uh Yeah, watch while London burns. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you both. Cheers. Absolute pleasure.